I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Melissa Mark Viverito. She's the former speaker of the New York City Council, and prior to that, she was a council member in New York during Michael Bloomberg's tenure as mayor. Currently, Melissa Mark Viverito is running for Congress in New York's 15th Congressional District, but she's really concerned about what she saw during her tenure as a city council member around Bloomberg's stop and frisk policy. She joins me to talk about what it was like on the ground for folks in that community and what happened when she spoke out against harmful policies like stop and frisk. So here's my conversation with Melissa Mark Viverito. Melissa Mark Viverito, welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. No, thanks for joining me on such short notice. Um, You were the New York City Council member doing Bloomberg's mayorship, and I think he was mayor from, what, 2002 to 2013? Right. Yeah, you became speaker after that, but but you were on the council, city council, while he was mayor and during the stop and frisk policy. So you know it really well. Yes, I was in office for his second and third term. And this issue of, of stop and frisk was something that those of us, the progressive members in the city council, really were pushing hard against. And it's a detrimental policy, a racist policy that... Many of the communities that we represented um, were deeply impacted by it. So there is a consistency and, and, and there's uh, interviews that I gave and statements that I've made and testimony that I provided uh, over time talking about the detrimental effects and, and encouraging the, that the administration at the time to reconsider and unfortunately, a lot of that fell on deaf ears. Yeah. So I just want to just jump right in and talk about the elephant in the room because, you know, he's running for president now. I think, you know, I, I'm assuming he's going to be on the debate stage tonight. But, you know, he's rising in the polls. Right. And I think that's baffled a lot of people. But I think there's a couple of groups of people. There are people who were in New York City at the time and who, like yourself, were really familiar with the policy and, you know, have always had problems with it. Then there are people who are kind of like marginally aware, knew it was bad, but didn't necessarily live through it. And then I think there are people who just have no clue about what stop and frisk is. And I think that's why he may be doing so well in the polls right now. Well, I mean, look, he is trying to buy this election, right? He's inundating and flooding social media, mainstream media with ad buys where he's trying to recreate who he is and what his legacy is. And that's troubling, right? This is what the problem is that we have a great inequity in our country, but we have the ability for money to overpower debate and democratic processes. And that is the issue at hand, right? Here we are, those of us that fought back, not only on stop and frisk, but many other policies of Bloomberg's legacy and administration. You know, he's going out there and being able to cast a wide net because of the wealth that he has to really repaint himself and, and, and uh, reposition himself as some sort of a progressive you know, a success story. And that's for those of us that lived this reality and fought against it, it's a very troubling trend. So, you know, I think it's incumbent upon us that fought back to really alert others about what life was like in New York City under these racist policies. And so it really is is a symbol, I think, Bloomberg's candidacy, a symbol of what is wrong uh, with our country at the moment, the vast inequity the accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few, the ability for that accumulated wealth to now have an impact on our policy, our debate, our discussion, 
you can't get more anti-democratic than that. But I'm just curious because so the thing is, is that he's doing well in a demographic that you wouldn't expect. Like he's doing well amongst black, black constituents, right? In comparison to some of the other candidates. I think, you know, depending on the poll, he may be second or third, you know, behind Biden or behind Sanders. I just don't have an explanation as to why that is. Other than what you said, his money, he's using his money to kind of blanket the airwaves and people are just unfamiliar with this policy of his or many of his policies that hurt black and brown communities. Agreed. And I think that that's what it is, is that that he is able to put a message out there through his ad box that really does run counter to what we were living on the ground. Now, granted, part of the conversation that's been happening with Stop and Frisk is, is, oh, you know, we were taking guns off the street and making our community safer. Who's going to disagree with that if that's the message that you're getting? And the reality is, no, that is not true. That is not what happened. Uh, he did fund nationally some of these anti-gun violence efforts, but on the ground, he was implementing policies that were creating great divisions with communities of color and police that was giving a lot of hesitation, that was criminalizing a whole generation of young people and the communities in which they resided. Uh, and that is something that you don't easily overcome. We are still living the consequences of those policies. So when we talk about someone who wants to be the president of the United States, that wants to represent um, this great diversity that that exists in this country, uh, when someone has presented policies that have really been hurtful to us, uh, you know, it's it's not something that that I can embrace, and that I don't think it's genuine when he's talking about, oh well, and you know, I've reconsidered. And, and I've come to understand that this was hurtful. Well, there were those of us 8, 10, 12 years fighting you by demonstrating the data uh, that proved, that basically disproved what you were saying, and yet you turned a deaf ear to us. So that does not uh, really bode well, someone who wants to be a president for all, right, and be an inclusive president. Um, so I think that this is really troubling, and that's why it's important for us to really present the real uh, the real record. And, and let me be, be very clear. I think that Bloomberg's candidacy has just as much to do with a Warren and a Sanders and the policies that they present as much as it is about Trump. And, uh, you know, the issue of the inequity that exists, of making sure that people are paying their fair share of making sure corporations are paying their taxes, of making sure the wealthier are paying more. Those are policies that clearly Bloomberg has been against. He's been vocal around that. And he has basically expressed in so many terms that he does not want to see a Warren or a Sanders in office because of the economic policies that they embrace. And so let us I don't want people to forget that, right? This is not just about Trump. This is also about economic policies that he is not supportive of, which are policies that are demanding uh, more equity in our system. So that's important as well. So can you tell us a little bit about what was actually happening on the ground? Because I was watching an interview the other day of someone who was a teenager during that time, and he was talking about the anxiety and the fear that people felt, you know, just walking home from school and not knowing whether you were going to be thrown against the wall or not. You know, so what was it like on the ground? So my district um, encompassed one of the precincts that had one of the top five stop and frisks in the city. Uh, it was a common conversation whenever we were in the communities, family members that were uh, you know, concerned about their loved ones, about their children, about their grandchildren, uh, stories that you would hear about children being stopped six, seven, eight, ten times uh, just for being of color 
and it's just you know it's it's just really deplorable right to think about the long-term consequences of those young people uh, that's their experience with the police department that's their experience with criminal justice that's what we all deserve safe communities and you can just whole cloth right criminalize a whole community or segments of our population. And so I talk about the fact that also, you know, I remember one day I was in my district office uh, in East Harlem when someone came in and said, councilwoman, councilwoman, there's cops right outside your door, you know, stopping a young man. And I go outside and literally the kid was up against the wall and there were about eight to 10 cops around him. I questioned it. I challenged them. Uh, and by the time, you know, he fits the description, the general lingo you hear from law enforcement. And because I was there observing and questioning and because I was an elected official, they let the ki- they let the young man go. But, you know, you already could see the sense of defeatism in his face and the whole hunched shoulders and kind of sense of shame. It's something that you don't I mean, as someone who experienced it by being an observant to it, it was very painful to watch. And I can only imagine what that young man felt and all the other hundreds of thousands of young men that have gone through this experience. And so, you know, it is something that is just a, a, um, a black mark on our city that this mayor contributed to at the time. So it really is... Um, it's, it's important to really present the real picture of what the consequences of these types of policies are. It sounds like they're being terrorized, really, like these communities are being terrorized. So what are some of the, the long term consequences? I mean, did I, I know you mentioned some of the, the numbers, right? Hundreds of thousands of people were stopped because I think before that, before this policy, the number of people who were stopped by the police in, in those communities was like in the tens of thousands, you know, maybe 10,000 or 20,000. But then at the height of stop and frisk, I think it was, you know, over, um, you know, half a million or something like that. Yeah, at the, there was a video that I was pulling up and putting on social media from 2010. Um, and I cited at that time, the statistics were about 550,000. But by the by the end of this, by the time that the lawsuit was in place and, and that there was a serious conversation about finding this practice unconstitutional, it reached 750,000. Wow. A year. Wow. A year. That's, like, um, that's almost a million. I know you know how to count, but that's almost a million yeah. people, a million yeah. lives and families. In a city of 8 million, yes. It, it's horrifying. Um, so, you know, the, the, the consequences are, you know, the criminalization of a whole community, a criminalization of people being viewed, right, in this, in this light that when you are viewed and you are seen, uh, that you are a criminal and therefore you deserve to be up against that wall, regardless of whether or not you did anything wrong. Uh, it, it's racist. That's why I say it's, it's, a, it's a blemish that um, is very hard to overcome. As we talk about it more and more, it brings up anger and, and a lot of pain for me personally, you know, as someone who is always fighting against injustice and wants to uh, really highlight the, the racism that exists in our society and that we have a responsibility to call it what it is and figure out how do we change that view um, and our practices and who's always talked about holding police accountable, et cetera, for their actions. So we, we, um, this is, this is a, a debate that I'm, I'm glad we're rehashing to some extent, right? Because 
Mayor Bloomberg needs to really have a full accounting of his record and he needs to be held accountable. Right. Because he was defending this publicly, you know, months before he announced his presidential campaign. You can't go from I don't know when he I can't remember when he launched his presidential campaign, like last fall or something. You don't go from that to I fully understand why this was harmful in less than six months. No, you don't. Exactly. You don't. And and that's why I don't buy it. Um, Anybody who tries to defend it. Uh, should be ashamed because there is no way that you can't tell me that someone who has based his wealth uh, and who's created and generated his wealth from these analytics and from data-driven processes and mechanisms or whatever it is, when the the analysis was done and the facts were presented and the data was shown, uh, it was definitely not fitting the messaging they were providing when they say, oh, we were taking guns off the street. That's not true. The data disproved that. There was absolutely no correlation between this expanded uh, and aggressive uh, and excessive abuse of power uh, to taking guns off the street. There was absolutely, the data did not support that. Uh, And so even in being presented time and again, not only the data, but also the psychological effects that this policy was having, it was basically scoffed at. Uh, And so it's really, really hard to believe that it's genuine and that it's just not, you know, that it basically at the end of the day, it's just pandering, right? Because now a larger audience to appeal to, and uh, he's trying to sound contrite. I deeply am offended by it, but obviously uh, take it with a huge grain of salt. Because you were one of the, the people on the ground giving that data to him in his office mm-hmm. saying, hey, look, this is harmful. And then so what was the response? What would you get in response from him? I mean, look, every every single, but like, the city council is the legislative body for the city of New York. So we every year uh, during budget time uh, and, and, and throughout the year, we have hearings, right, to raise visibility and accountability of practices. And, you know, I would place myself, despite the fact that I was not on the public safety committee, I would come to the public safety committee hearings to personally question the police commissioner about the uh, about what was happening, questioning their, their decisions to uphold this practice and challenging them. And it got to be very tense debates. The police commissioner uh, and, and obviously the mayor completely embracing and supporting him it would just basically be very offensive towards us, dismissive of what concerns we were raising, despite the fact that we live in our communities, that we represent our communities, we're living this reality with our constituents, and that for some reason that experience didn't have any weight and shouldn't factor at all in terms of, of revisiting or reviewing uh, this practice and, and what changes and adjustments we need to make. So, you know, in some cases, it was felt like the NYPD was an occupying force in communities. And if you're getting a message from the top that basically is being dismissive to a community that is raising this as a concern, don't tell me that's not going to rub off in the way that the police officers interact with those community members. And so that also was contributing uh, to this divide between police-community relations became very fractured, uh, obviously, as a result of this as well. You know, was there a divide amongst the community? Because sometimes I know in these communities, people say, you know, we need more protection because there's some crime in our neighborhood, right? And then people like Bloomberg, who have nefarious motives, right, will use that to enact a racist policy. So were the were the people in the community saying, hey, we could use more protection, and they kind of use that to to put something like this in place? I mean, I not, you know, no, because look, everybody wants to be safe in their neighborhoods, right? Nobody right. wants to be unsafe. Everybody wants to be safe. Uh, but because so many families and individuals are being impacted, 
right? And we're living this experience firsthand, whether it was their child or a relative or a nephew or whatever it was, or a grandchild. You know, there were a lot of people that were seriously concerned. What did keep coming up, especially from the elders, was the idea of like, oh, I remember when, right? We used to have community police officers. The idea of community policing, which was an ability, which was the police officer that used to know you, right? Used to know the neighborhood, used to know the business leaders, would call you out by your name. Like, it was constantly like, well, I remember when, right? We used to have these good relationships with police. I remember the police officer on the corner. So it, it brought up that conversation for some of us who then started to advocate for a real community-based policing program to be implemented. And that came up into conversations when I became speaker uh, to really um, be able to provide the support uh, to be able to implement a robust and genuine and true community policing program. So that's the conversation that emanate, you know, emerged about the need to bridge the gap with police, the need to have officers that would be much more empathetic and more aware of the neighborhood that they were patrolling and establishing a relationship with with community members. That's what resulted in conversation. But people obviously were appalled too because a lot of them were living this experience with, with their relatives. And so they were concerned. That, that their child was going to get wrapped up or ensnared in this policy. And so it was, you know, it's a mixed, it's, it, it's a mixed bag, but for the most part, I heard more, more concern than anything else. Now, you know, people outside of the city, you know, will try to justify it in some cases. Oh, well, this makes communities safer. And, and that's the way some people are trying to present it. But that's not what we were living day to day. Yeah. So so what do you say to people who are like, you know, oh, that was the past. You know, he's apologized and at least he's going to beat Trump. At least he's challenging Trump. You know, what do you say to that excuse for supporting him? What is the plan? It's not, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I'm sorry, it was hurtful. Really? Well, if you know that there is systemically a racist policy, that systemic racism is real, that policies that are being implemented that are fracturing communities, that are disproportionately impacting communities of color more than others, then what's your plan to uproot that, right? Do you have a genuine understanding? If you have a genuine understanding of this, then you will be presenting plans and policies to really address it. And I haven't heard that from Bloomberg other than to say, well, I'm apologizing, let's move on. No, it's not that easy. And he should not get off that easy. Um, So he needs to be, if if he really wants to prove that he's genuine, then uh, what his solutions will be uh, are ones that we would have to analyze. But I don't get, you know, I don't get that at all. And he should, I guess, as I said, he shouldn't be given a pass on this. And it's not just stop and frisk, that's just one. Again, there's many, many other issues when we look at economic development, and when we look at immigration, et cetera. It's 12 years, right, <laughs> of policies and, and practices under his administration and his leadership that should be t- given a really, really close, uh, be, be scrutinized closely. Do you think the media is giving him a pass? What should they be asking him? Like during the debate tonight, for instance, what should they be asking that they're not asking? Well, I'm going to, let's, let's check it out. I'm really, you know, <laughs> I've been very concerned about the lack of attention to certain issues in prior debates um, in terms of coming from the reporters or the moderators. I heard, I believe yesterday, I may have seen Chuck Todd say, oh, we're not going to be asking a lot of questions. So I, that to me is a pass, right? If, if you're going to try to minimize and let the, the candidates, you know, speak as much as possible and not question them along the way, then you are giving them a pass. Uh, and so my thing is, he's new on the stage. He's going to be alone on the stage. 
He's going to be stripped from his ads. He's not going to have that. He's going to have to be there all bare by himself to prove himself. He should be questioned highly, you know, and he hasn't received the level of attention that other candidates can. Um, and he has skirted the democratic process and skirted the other, you know, a, a, um, the ability to be scrutinized in this way. So it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm going to be watching because I am curious to see uh, what level of attention and analysis and questioning he's going to get. He definitely will get a lot of pressure from the other candidates. I'm really curious to see how the moderators handle a Bloomberg on that stage tonight. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was when I was thinking about his candidacy for president, I was thinking about this looks like a man who is used to using his wealth and his privilege to skirt processes that the rest of us are used to adhering to. Right. He's kind of adept at operating outside of the boundaries. Exactly. You know, and it's, it's fascinating because, you know, I was talking to a group of activists recently and one of them made the point of like every billionaire is a public policy failure. And to some extent, <laughs> I agree with that. Right. In the sense that. Um, this amassing of wealth uh, because, right, the tax loopholes um, or the tax structure is one that has them avoid certain taxes or paying their fair taxes or corporations not paying taxes. So they, this amassing of wealth, right, and then now using his wealth to then throw that money around, right, and, and, then, and then try to influence people that, you know, maybe do need the money, right? Or maybe do need a, a, a good paying job in the next couple of months or in the next year. Or you know, there's a certain, you know, abuse here that, that really doesn't sit well with me. And it's kind of very cynical in a way. Um, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a real concern that, yes, he's able to cloak himself in a new image that he's trying to present of who he is and what his accomplishments are. And then also to try to avoid a democratic process by having to interact as much as possible uh, with those that he seeks to represent. And, and that's not, to me, that's not the democracy I want to live in. Yeah, I think you may have answered this earlier, but but why do you think he's running? Why is he running? <laughs> I mean, like I, like I mentioned, I really think that this has, is as much about who is the democratic candidate as much as it is being against Trump, right? Because he has been very, very clear that he does not support the economic policies of a Warren and a, and, a, and a Sanders. So he's trying to do as much as he can to tarnish, you know, the success of those two candidates. He seems to be failing at the moment. Um, but, you know, the, the, the issue of, of not having a Democrat there that embraces the radical and systemic change uh, at an, an economic level that, that Warren and, and, and Sanders embrace. And so it really, to me, that, that I don't want, don't think should be overlooked. And uh, obviously saying, oh, yeah, I'm against Trump. Who's not going to support that? We're all against Trump. And he might just be using that, you know, as a way of, of trying to divert a little bit of attention as to what his genuine intentions. That's, you know, and, and this is one of the reasons that I decided to run for Congress as well as I'm as I'm running for Congress is because the sense of emergency that I feel right now about where our democracy is at and who has influence and who has the ability to succeed. Uh, and it's very skewed, right, against the majority of us in this country. So there is a systemic inequity that has to be rectified. And that's why I feel the need to also jump in uh, and, and be involved. And, and with all the you know work that I've accomplished over my time in the, in the city council and as speaker, uh, that I want to bring that to a national level and part of the national conversation about what kind of country do we want to be 
and what kind of country do you want to continue to build? And and that's where, you know, where I find myself right now. Well, okay. Well, Melissa Mark Viverito, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's see what happens in the debate tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.